Father, we come with that as our hope, that your love is strong enough for our doubts, for our fears, and strong enough for what is broken inside of us and around us. And so as we look at your scriptures and listen to you say, here's how you should pray, here's how you should talk to me, would you assure us in our hearts that you know what we need even before we ask, and you still want to hear from us because of how much you love us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Kathy's going to read our text tonight. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who, see, who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Thanks, Kathy. When I was in eighth grade, I had moved to a new school, new town, in the middle of seventh grade, so I had missed football season in seventh grade and joined up in eighth grade, and I, we had moved from East Texas to West Texas, where even in a unique way relative to the rest of Texas, football is sort of everything. Uh, I, I was raised 32 miles from where Friday Night Lights was born. Um, if that gives you any sense of things. So very much a football culture. And uh, when we got ready to play our first game that season, the coach who was the embodiment of um, sort of cartoon character, junior high football coach, uh, if I can give you some sense, gosh, I could, I could talk for 45 minutes about this guy and have before, but um, my, my new favorite way to describe him is he popped up on, fa a picture of him popped up on Facebook. Uh, just, this was just like four weeks ago. And he's in his 60s now and still wearing cleats wherever he goes. <laughs> Which was just, I, I texted my brothers separate and a group of my friends that I grew up with separate. And I said, if, if I told you that there was someone we knew who in his 60s was still walking around in cleats, who would it be? And unanimously, without hesitation, everybody named this coach, who I will not name uh, publicly. Anyway, uh, so we get ready for our first game that season, and coach comes in the locker room right before the game and says, Jason is asked to lead us in the Lord's Prayer today because he has something on his heart that he wants uh, to do with it, which was interesting to me because I didn't identify Jason as someone who would ask to lead any kind of prayer. Uh, so I was uh, interested to see what was going to come of this. So we all say the Lord's Prayer together. And then after, uh, night is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, Jason at the top of his lungs says, now let's go kick some... Um, 
And that was his punctuation. That was what was on his heart uh, in leading the Lord's Prayer. And the coach, um, I looked at him, and he was grinning like the cat who ate the canary. You know, like, I got, a, I got an eighth-grade kid to say that, so I don't have to be the one to say it. Um, unless we're pretty rooted, I think, in a more liturgical tradition, most of us have... This is an assumption on my part, but I think it's probably true, at least for a lot of us, that we have some disconnection from this prayer as something that's truly meaningful or spiritual. Outside of, we know it's supposed to be meaningful or spiritual to us. Um, It has become something that is, for me, connected to junior high locker room, high school locker room experience, right? It just is. Every time, not, not every time. But I would say 50% or more of the time I encounter the Lord's Prayer, I think of that scene I just described to you. Um, Not the most spiritual experience of my life. Um, But I encountered growing up the Lord's Prayer in those kinds of settings more than in the church. I did. And I think that's true for a lot of us. And so even in my early 40s, I find myself having to work to really connect to this um, not, not only as a prayer, but almost connect to it as Scripture, <laughs> um, because it's sort of gotten pulled out of Scripture and stuck in all these other sort of token places in our lives where we know it doesn't have the meaning that you think it should mean, and that has gradually eroded, I think, for all of us, the significance of it. Um, but Jesus said, pray this way before he spoke these words. So as we come upon them, as going through the Sermon on the Mount, I think we have to ask, what if he meant that? (laughs) What if this is still how we're supposed to pray, and maybe what we're supposed to pray, these words, in a way that is bigger and more important than what it has become for us? Uh, There's a lot that could be said about the Lord's Prayer. It's been a challenge. I did some work on this uh, a year or two ago and never preached on it then, and so when we came to it, I've been drawing a lot on on some of what I had gone through before um, and reviewing some of that. Um, And what I want to do is walk through it pretty directly instead of trying to come up with something clever or new to say about it. Even in doing that, it's been a challenge for me to, I could do a whole series on this, and my goal today was to get through the whole thing today. And that was my goal until about 2.15 this afternoon when I finally called Scott and said, we're going to have to reconfigure <laughs> our schedule for the next few weeks because I'm, it's going to take at least two Sundays to get through this um, and do it in a way I feel good about. So we'll do the first part of this today and the next part next Sunday. Um, but, but what I want to say up front to all of us, to the extent that this prayer has become some, some sort of somewhere on the spectrum between empty ritual for us and just, eh, it just doesn't have all that much power for me. I think the invitation here is to move from that to sort of rescue it from the locker room uh, for a lot of us and let it reside and live and breathe in the place that Jesus said it when he spoke it as the prayer that teaches us, at the very least, as the prayer that teaches us to pray and possibly as a prayer that we're meant to pray ourselves individually, collectively, regularly. These exact words. So before I get into it, uh, we'll, we'll recover those first few sentences that Jesus says before he goes into the, the prayer in a minute. But, 
But just as a kind of review, last week, we, in this whole bigger passage of the first 18 verses of chapter 6, we kind of pull out three things that Jesus does in that passage. First of all, he warns us about doing our good deeds in front of an audience and therefore sort of building ourselves up by the approval or by impressing other people by the good things that we do. And he specifically uses the examples of prayer and giving and fasting as things that we shouldn't do in front of an audience. And in doing that, he reorients us from trying to get the approval or of people, impress other people, to the Father as the real source of our value and worth. And then as he does that, he sort of redefines the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom is not about impressing people or doing things in front of people. The kingdom is about faithfully and often quietly living out the way of Jesus and trusting that God is going to enact what he wants to enact publicly without us having to make much of ourselves in the process. And then in the middle of all of that, we get this, where he teaches us to pray in a way that I think directs us into that kind of life, out of the things that he cautions us about and into that sort of quiet, simple, prayerful life um, where we understand our relationship to the Father and we understand the way that the Father is working in the world. And he sort of anchors us with this prayer in that life. Um, and he does it in what I think is a really peaceful way. I think it's an oversimplification. I, I, any sort of like unifying theme that I would try to pull out and say, this is what the Lord's Prayer is really about, is an oversimplification. So I'm not going to try to assign a particular theme to it, but one thing that stood out to me this week as I was in this prayer more than I usually am on a day-to-day -day basis was this. It is, for me, a cure for the anxious way I go through life if my soul isn't settled into what Jesus teaches us to pray here. This going in and out of it again and again, if I really pray this way and allow it to, that kind of prayer to shape my life, it interrupts the anxiety that otherwise takes over my spirit when I'm not living with this perspective that he offers us here in the prayer. And it's much more than that, but it is at least that. It frees us from the tyranny of the way that our own desires, our own frustrations and disappointments and failures sort of jerk us back and forth. And it frees us from the crushing weight of all that the world gives us to worry about and to fear. So let's walk through what Jesus says here. First of all, before he uh, actually prays the prayer, and then through the first part of the prayer itself. He says, whenever you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I think he does two things that I want us to see before he actually gives us the prayer here. The first thing he does here in verses 5 and 6 is he redirects us from prayer as some sort of performance to prayer as real intimacy and conversation between us and God. From religious appearance, which is the way a lot of people in that time and space and still today will use prayer into 
a more relational religion. I'm not going to say that. The, 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 the fun way to say that is out of religion and into relationship, and I think there's nothing wrong with good religion. <laughs> uh, but he redirects us from a, re- a religion that is about impressing other people into prayer is primarily, according to what he says here, about you connecting your soul to the Father. So get out of the space where you're trying to impress people and go into your closet. When Jesus says things like, go into your closet, um, it's okay to say that he, uh, he uses hyperbole at time to make a point, but he's making a point. So you may need to go into your closet to get the point. He may mean what he says, that you need to move whatever is going on in you that makes you need to be seen or heard. You may need to do whatever you have to do to move this into space. And I think for us, um, this is a little bit of an extrapolation, but I think it's true whether or not it's exactly what he means here, because here he's specifically addressing sort of performance. But I think for us to actually engage the kind of intimacy that he's pointing us toward here, go into your closet may mean I'm going to take this space of significant amount of time and shut off my phone and shut off my TV and get away from my family or whatever it is that either, depending on your perspective, either prevents me from the kind of like silence and connection, personal intimacy with God that I want, or protects me <laughs> from actually having to be quiet with God. Because some of us don't know how to really be silent and be quiet with God for very long without engaging in some sort of distraction. He's pulling us to that sort of capacity for intimate, quiet connection. So there's that. And then in verses 7 and 8, he says this, When you're praying, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Here he reminds us about the nature of God set against the other gods of this age. Now, in, in context, he's specifically talking about actual other gods. So when he says, like the Gentiles do, thinking they will be heard, he's not saying there are non-Jews trying to pray to the Jewish God thinking they can impress him because the Gentiles at this point were not praying to, to, the, to Yahweh. They were praying to their own set of gods and their set of gods, you had to get their attention. Uh, they could be angry. They could be fi- there, was, there were all kinds of gods and they were not patient by and large. And they were not loving by and large. And so part of their religious tradition was, I have to say all these words to get the attention of these gods and to sort of impress them and cajole them and manipulate them into hearing me and responding to me. And so Jesus is specifically in that space saying, this is not what God is like. You see them trying to get their God's attention. That's not what what my father is like. And for us, though we are not tempted generally, to try to pray to a bunch of other actual deities. We have all kinds of other gods of this age that cause us to feel like I have to do just this right thing to get Yahweh's attention or to feel okay about myself. And he's saying, this is not what you have to be concerned about. He's saying, he's your father and he is listening before you start talking, before you ever begin praying the words I'm about to pray He's listening to you. You don't have to convince him to pay attention to you. Um, so, so he does that. He sort of 
gives you a sense of the nature of God. And, and I also think he then goes to give us a prayer that's pretty brief. And I think that that's on purpose. Um, and I think he is, again, telling us something about the character of God, that he already knows what you need. You don't have to do a bunch of long explanation. He knows your heart. He knows your circumstances. He knows what you need before you ask. Um, and so it's possible to just pray like this. And I think there's purpose in the brevity of this as well. So then in verse 9, we get into the actual prayer. He says, pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, we tend to see this as just sort of an introduction to the prayer. We all have our, it's interesting if you uh, get in settings where different people pray out loud, maybe it's only interesting to me, but um, to hear the different ways people start their prayers, dear Lord, or our Father, it, it, it uh, is always, I always like to hear people pray out loud and try to guess how they grew up uh, religiously based on the first few words of their prayers. And so we tend to kind of blow by, I think, these first few words of the prayer and think, well, this is, yeah, when you start praying, you get God's attention. You say something to let him know that you're talking to him. But I think this is really the end of what we're trying to pray ourselves toward. I think the beginning here gives us a sense of this is what it's really all about. We're growing into the maturity of seeing, our, seeing God in heaven, the God of the universe, the one whose name is hallowed, whose name is above every other name. We're growing into understanding him as father in the way that Jesus understood him as father. Not just a mental sort of, I know the Bible says God is my father, but we're, it matters that Jesus is the one who prayed this prayer and gave it to us. And he, had a, he clearly had an understanding of a father son relationship with, with God, and we're being invited into that. He's saying, in the way that I pray, Father, you can now pray that same prayer. You have that relationship with God as your Father that I have. And understanding that we're fathered by the God of all creation, also it helps us understand our identity and our destiny, how we're meant to live and what will come of our lives. The first time that this concept um, of God as Father shows up in the Scriptures is when Moses goes before Pharaoh, the, God's people have been taken captive uh, by Egypt, and in Egypt, and Moses goes before Pharaoh, and, he's, and he says to Pharaoh, Yahweh, our God, says, Israel is my son, my firstborn, let my people go that they may serve me. So this is the first time that we get this idea that God is the father of his people. And at that point, the declaration is, these are God's kids, and they're going to be liberated. He's going to set them free to serve them. And that idea is loaded into every time the word, the concept of God as father appears again and again. And so Jesus is inviting us into the richness of that history and that legacy of understanding that when we pray, we have that birthright. We are his children and he is going to set us free and we're expressing uh, that when we call him father. Um, knowing God as our father reminds us, just as it did his people 
all those years ago, that we've been set free to serve him no matter the circumstances around us, knowing that he's secured our future. So from the outset, this prayer not only affirms a familiarity and a closeness with God, which it does, but it points us toward what that means. Because we have that familial relationship with God, we have hope that we wouldn't have otherwise, and that there is a sort of revolution that is loaded into us, into who we are. God is going to overthrow the powers of this age, and from that will come freedom under him for his people. He's going to shield and deliver his children no matter what's going on in the here and now. And so praying that sets us in the middle of his work. It it identifies a relationship, it identifies an intimacy, but it also puts us in the middle of what he's doing. We're not bystanders to history. We're members of the family who are caught up in God's purposes for the world. And I think that's important to, I think that's another important thing loaded into us praying to God as Father in this space and just to our general understanding, no matter how sort of deep or shallow you would, you would describe your faith, um, understanding that you have that view of, well, yeah, God's my Father and I'm his kids. Um, as we pray this prayer or in any other way, uh, assigns a certain sort of familial relationship and identity. My kids are my kids, and I love them no matter what they do. I love them when they do their chores. I love them when they don't do their chores. Uh, But I have no concept of family in my home that doesn't involve them participating in who we are as a family. There is no sense in our home where someone, some child, or someone for very long could understand being Thad and Amy's kid as a purely passive reality that it doesn't change something about who I am and what I do on a day-to-day basis. You take out the trash. If the trash is full, you take out the trash. Why? Because you're my kid. (laughs) Um, And I don't do it very often anymore because you're big enough to do it now. Sorry. Um, You do dishes. You read. You do school. You learn the character and values that we find important as a family. And none of those things are punishments. None of them are pointless duties. They're all, all the way down to taking out the trash. They are all pointed toward a bigger picture of who we as a family, we as the parents of these children believe that we as a family are and who our children were created to be and who we're raising them to be. And while the reality of getting there is often messy and incomplete, the picture we're aiming at as a family And having our kids do these things is really beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. It doesn't mean we're painting it perfectly. But what we're after is a good thing. It's a gift that we hope to give our kids, bringing them into a certain kind of life we believe they were created for, a life that's really life. And when we place ourselves in the household of God by identifying him as our father, the same kind of thing happens. We become a part of a family that can't be just about, he's my father, and that doesn't mean anything for my life. No, it means I'm a part of his family, and I am being raised up into who he has created me to be. This prayer is a way of reminding ourselves not just that he loves us as his own, but that we are living and active members of his family, whatever that means. 
when we call God Father, we're agreeing we're his kids. <laughs> Learning his ways, stepping into the world of pain and darkness with him. Because that's what he's doing. That's how he became our father in the per- first place. And so we're joining him in the way that his family works. We're giving our lives to this endeavor in the last part of this phrase, hallowed be your name. We're praying for God to be seen as the rightful father and king of all creation. And we're giving our lives to that end and all that comes with it, to God being worshiped, to the whole earth praising his goodness, to his justice rolling down like waters and his righteousness like a mighty stream, to everyone being freed from pain and sin and death. We're joining in that work as part of his family. So from the start of the prayer, we have the direction of life with God in Jesus. He's showing us, he's pointing us to, this is who you are. This is what life with me looks like. It's not just about tending our own spiritual growth, though that's definitely loaded into this prayer. Uh, The intimacy of relationship is clearly a primary point of a prayer that starts with when you pray, call him Father. It's about kneeling before God and then standing with him, enduring the pain of the world as the reality of God's presence absorbs and heals that pain through the cross. We are joining him as he does that. Okay? Verse 10, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. So I think most obviously what this, this, him telling us to pray this, what it does is eliminate the thought that has taken root in much of Christianity that God's kingdom is only for a distant heaven. That any sort of thought that his, the the perfection of his kingdom in heaven has anything to do with the messed up world that we live in uh, is mistaken. This uproots that notion. Uh, Jesus tells us to pray now for God's kingdom and will to come here on earth just as it is in heaven. I think it is as it looks. I don't think this is very complicated. I think Jesus is telling us, pray right now for what is true in heaven, for what God's will is for all of creation to arrive. Pray for that. And this is an all-encompassing prayer, meaning we're asking for his kingdom reality to take hold of the world around us and to take hold of our lives. I like the way that John Foreman phrased it when he wrote that last song that we sang, invade my heart, invade this broken town. When we pray for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, it's for both of those things. So we're inviting God to reorder the nature of the world when we say, your kingdom come. We're also inviting him to reorder our lives, our decisions, our relationships, our finances, our politics, all of it, so that they are all like and building toward whatever is real and true in heaven. That's what we're praying for. Whatever he intends for the ultimate redeemed creation to look like, we're inviting him to go ahead and start doing that in me and in the world around me. And it's clear, whatever this kingdom that Jesus announced repeatedly, he he talks about it in a prayer here, but this is what he does when he speaks again and again as he declares the kingdom of God is here. It has arrived in me. It's clear that whatever that is, and it's a lot of things, and it's hard to pin down, and it's hard to define at times, it's something that actually happens. It's something that actually comes to life within our world. It's not just an abstract concept. It's not just something that is forever stuck in heaven. 
It is something that is actually coming true in our world. We read this passage from Micah 4 last week, and I want to read it again because I think it gives us vision. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, it's easy for that to feel abstract and distant. distant. But this gives us vision for what we're, the kind of thing that we're praying for that God has already said, this is what it's going to look like when my kingdom comes. Micah wrote, In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. People shall stream to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In these first couple of verses, we have the bigness of God, and we have the goodness of God. We have the God whose mountain is the highest place to whom everyone is being drawn because of his goodness. He's not a a God sitting up on a mountain that causes everyone to fear and shrink away. He's this God of the universe who in human space and time, in our actual creation, is existing as the highest being, and we're drawn to it. We're streaming to him, it says. He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. God's ultimate will and kingdom reality is revealed here. Peace. This is what this is the true peace that will come when his kingdom comes. We know that we only have that kind of thing in part. Now, the idea that we can somehow bring about this kind of peace is flawed if we think that we're able to do it in its fullness on our own. We know by our own power we can't bring this kind of scene into being, but we are told to pray for it to come. And as we pray for it to come, we're children of the Father being raised in this way to be part of bringing it about in whatever ways are set before us. So we don't get to just say, well, God will do that someday, but it really doesn't have that much to do with how I live because we know we can't accomplish this ourselves. No, we're, this is who he is. This is who our father is. And this is what he's going to bring and what we're praying for him to bring. So when it's before us to participate in this coming true, we enter into that. And that's part of what is before us here. And then verse five, it says, for all the people's walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. We walk in the name of this God. We pray for his will to be done, and we live as people in whom, first of all, in whom his kingdom, this kingdom that Micah has described for us, is alive and is now coming. We see the kingdom of God coming through Jesus. The kingdom what the prophets have been telling us all along will happen. Israel, and now all of God's people will be set free. Evil will be defeated. And Yahweh, the true God, will return, really return, and sit as king. And Jesus taught this prayer that we're looking at before the cross in the sequence of time, before he went to the cross. But the whole of it, 
the whole of this prayer, and certainly this phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is now fueled by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We don't have to wonder, how is this ever going to all come to pass? It has come to pass in the cross and the resurrection. And we now live in anticipation of the fullness of what Jesus has accomplished settling in to our time and space. We pray for it and we join it as it happens. In trying to understand uh, what it means, because this is a, I think this is a part of this concept of his kingdom coming, knowing he, only he can bring it, but that we have some kind of role. I think it's tied up in the concept of what he accomplished on the cross and the resurrection, some of what I talked about on Easter. I've had a few really good conversations about un- unpacking what it means that Jesus has done everything, and yet we have a role to play in, in bringing this reality into our time and space. And, and why, if he's done everything, it still looks undone in some ways. I mean, how do I reconcile Paul saying, where, O oh, death, is your sting when I daily feel the sting of death, right? Um, I think this is a challenging part of our faith, uh, So in trying to understand what it means that God has done all that can be done to bring the kingdom, but we're also called to join in its calling, N.T. Wright uh, uses a couple of great illustrations. Uh, One of them is in medicine, one of them is in music. I'll just just tell you about the first one uh, today. Uh, But he uses the analogy of Jesus has looked at a world that is beset by infection, that has no cure, and he has invented penicillin. He, is, he has, by his own power and wisdom, come up with the cure to the infection uh, that, that plagues the whole world. And then he has made us all doctors who are first cured of the infection ourselves, and then are sent out with the medicine to those in need. We didn't make the medicine, The only medicine that will save people comes from Jesus, not from anything that I can do. I can't make the medicine any better. It already cures the infection. But I can tell the world there's a cure. There's medicine for what infects us. And I can lead the world to the healing that Jesus provides. Not perfect, but it's helpful, at least to me, in kind of understanding the the two parts of this, The kingdom came with Jesus, and it will fully come when the world is healed by this gift that he's given us, and only by his gift. So when we pray this, we're praying for the redemption of the world, for evil to be defeated once and for all, for heaven and earth to come together under God's powerful, gentle rule once and for all. And if we pray for this, we have to be ready for, to live for it. And I think it's as simple as that. When we ask for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth, we have to remember when I say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, well, I'm but dust. I was raised from the ground. I am part of the earth that I am asking for his kingdom to invade, to change, to transform. I'm earth too. So we're inviting him to work in us and to work through us as he wishes. And we're remembering all along that 
it's risky to do that. It's risky to put my life in that stream to say, yes, I'm a part of that family, which means I now have these roles and responsibilities and this identity. It's risky and it costs us something. But God is our Father, and whatever He does is pointed toward us experiencing the life that is really life. What we die to, what we lose along the way, He either was meant to die because it doesn't bring us life, or he will resurrect and redeem what we lose along the way. So I'm going to pause here um, as, it, as it relates to continuing on in the passage. Um, as, I, as I pause, I want to acknowledge uh, something that I think is a risk here of, of getting too far into analyzing a prayer. I mean, none of us... Uh, you're not all going to be nervous to pray around me because I told you I pay attention to the first thing you say. None of us likes the idea of having our prayers sort of analyzed and picked apart, right? And we have to assume that Jesus was a little more okay with it since he said, hey, here's how to pray, pay attention. That he was intending us to actually pay attention to what he said. But there's a risk, I think, for us in looking into the layers, to the real meaning of this, of these phrases in the Lord's Prayer that we actually get scared off by this because it's big, rich language, and the ideas behind it are life-changing. They're, they're really meaningful. Um, there's a risk that we decide, I can't really pray these words until I really master all of this, till I'm 100% sure that I'm going to live up to what I pray, but that's not the point of what Jesus is doing here. It is important, I think, to understand that in this prayer we're moving Godward, we're asking for the fullness of what he has. And that means he will unsettle what we already have and maybe take some of it away and change who we are in some ways. But we're not suggesting perfection by being willing to ask, even by willing to sort of rehearse again and again our asking. We're not suggesting that we're already perfect when we enter into this prayer. Richard Foster, who... Uh, has written some of the best stuff I've read outside the scriptures on prayer, says this about this struggle for us. He says, The truth of the matter is we all come to prayer with a tangled mass of motives, altruistic and selfish, merciful and hateful, loving and bitter. Frankly, this side of eternity will never unravel the good from the bad, the pure from the impure. But what I've come to see is that God is big enough to receive us with all our mixture. We do not have to be bright or pure or filled with faith or anything. This is what grace means. And not only are we saved by grace, we live by it as well. And we pray by it. I think this prayer is given to us in part as a recognition of our imperfection and our mixed motives. If, if those things weren't present, we wouldn't need him to teach us how to pray. In Luke's gospel, the Lord's Prayer comes as Jesus' answer to one of his disciples admitting that they needed to be taught this most basic of spiritual acts. He said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus looks at this goofy lot who he knows are mixed up and unsteady and will betray him and all of that, and he says, okay. When you pray, pray like this. So his offer is the same to us, no matter how mixed up or goofy or unfaithful or unsteady we might be. Come as you are, 
pray like this and be confident that no matter how weak you are or how strong you are, God is going to make good on what you're praying for here. It doesn't rely on you. You're being invited into it and you have a part to play. But his answering this prayer isn't a function of how well you pray it or how pure your motives are or how much you understand it. Yours is to just join in the asking and wait as he does the answering in you and then sometimes despite yourself through you. All right, I want us to end tonight by praying with this in mind. (laughs) It doesn't matter where we're coming from. I want us to pray the Lord's Prayer together, uh, and then we'll be done. So why don't we stand as we do that? And this is going to be the KJV Lord's Prayer, as best I know how to define it, because that's how most of us learned it. And if I try to make you recite uh, some other translation, you'll trip over the words. So there's the these and the thous and the thines, if you want to know what's here, right? Jesus said, pray then in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right. You can sit for just a couple more minutes. We're going to have announcements. So if you have an announcement, you can head on up here to the front. Here are a few questions for you to consider about the Lord's Prayer this week. Does the Lord's Prayer hold much meaning for me at all or has familiarity or more exposure to it outside of church than inside obscured its meaning to me? Do I embrace both the intimacy of God being my true father and the familial identity and roles that come with being his child? How can I grow in these spaces? And then finally, what are two broken parts of my life and two broken parts of the world around me I can faithfully pray will be transformed by the reality of God's kingdom and will arriving here and now.